Change of Directions podcast with Nicole Scott and Don Darman. Hello and welcome to another episode of Change of Directions. Today we are joined by Tim Davies, CEO of High Rock, who I had the pleasure of interviewing uh, nearly a year ago in the fall at the KPMG uh, Global Innovation Awards, where he was the winner, and rightfully so, because High Rock is quite an interesting company doing something very cool within the hydrogen ecosystem. Tim, can you tell us what you're doing? Uh, absolutely. Well, thank you very much, and um, yeah, good morning to everyone. Um, and it's really good to be, to be on the uh, on the podcast. So, what are we doing? So, obviously, you as specialists of, of hydrogen know um, how great a fuel it is. But the challenge, obviously, that we see is how you make hydrogen. So, the, the challenge being steam methane reforming the common way it's made produces a very large amount of carbon dioxide. It pack it's better just to use the fossil fuel than to produce the hydrogen. The alternative, water electrolysis, requires a huge amount of energy to break down the water bond. So, in effect. If we're going to adopt hydrogen as a fuel, the hydrogen economy as a planet and help uh, address you know, uh, global warming, we need a new way to make it. Now, we believe we have one of those new ways. What we basically do is the electrolysis of hydrocarbons. So we take the best of blue and the best of, of green and combine it. So we split apart any hydrocarbon molecule um, out there, biomethane, uh, methane, natural gas, propane, uh, even player gas. We split that apart into hydrogen and solid carbon. We keep the hydrogen, the good bit, the, the valuable fuel, and we store the carbon with no CO2 as solid carbon. So sequester it, and you've got affordable zero CO2 hydrogen. That's a, a new technology, obviously. First question would be the gases that you use for the for the plasma. Um, what is it called? Injection or reduction or uh, how, how do you call it? So yeah, we. I mean, we we very much call it electrolysis because it's an electrically driven process. So plasma. For those of you that haven't come across plasma, it's just the full state of matter. So it's really simple. Solid, if you give it enough energy, you make a liquid. If you give it enough energy, you make a gas. Give it enough energy, you make a plasma. So everything can be a plasma. What we do is we take hydrocarbon. So hydrocarbon is no more than hydrogen and carbon together. So methane is the most obvious one, but all the different hydrocarbons, the higher hydrocarbons work for us. And we just give it such a strong electric field that it splits it apart. No more complicated than that. So it's electrically driven electrolysis. The fuels we use, as I say, any, any hydrocarbon will do. The process, the chemistry is incredibly simple. It's literally splitting them, storing solid carbon and H2 molecules. The physics of how we do it, plasma torches, is uber cool, really exciting. And yeah, it's world leading. Nobody else can do what we can do with plasma torches. So the first question I, I would have is because there are like two or maybe three things that can still emit CO2. The first is where do you get the methane? Uh, or, or the gas, and the second is uh, where do you get the energy to power the the plasma torches, and then of course, uh, what do you do with the stored uh, CO two? I'll cover them off in in order with one exception, which is there's no CO two. We don't produce CO two th through the process. So the process produces hydrogen and solid carbon, and the solid carbon gets used for a lot of different things. At the moment, carbon black gets used in tires. It's kind of the the clever product in tires that makes rubber tires rubbery. Um, but toners and coatings and other things as well. Plus, we have a wealth of other uses for the carbon, which we'll probably come on to. Um, in terms of the other two pieces, so it's crucial to us that we find a way of making affordable hydrogen. Splitting hydrocarbons apart is by far easier. It uses one-fifth of the energy than water electrolysis per kilogram of, of hydrogen. Therefore, it uses a fraction of the electricity that water electrolysis would use just by the simple laws of chemistry. You can't beat that. Even if you made 
electrolysis, 100% water electrolysis, 100% efficient, it would still use five times more energy than we do per kilogram of hydrogen by the simple laws of chemistry. Having said that, we use, if possible, biomethane, if possible, flare gas, so we're preventing other CO2. But where we use um, uh, pure uh, natural gas, methane, and so forth, then yes, there will be in the production of that some fugitive emissions. So you can't help that in the process of making it however efficient the gas production is. We factor that into all of the calculations. So when you look, for example, in the UK at the low carbon hydrogen standard or in the US at the Greek model, we factor in the fugitive emissions into the emissions of our process. Our actual process itself, producing hydrogen, zero CO2, fugitive emissions if we use natural gas upstream. However, where we use something like biomethane, so a plant very cleverly captures CO2, best direct air capture there is, best PV cell there is in terms of capturing the sunlight, so that's capturing atmospheric CO2, flipping it through the process, either then with anaerobic digestion, pyrolysis, or even my preferred model is this clever unit that evolution has developed called a cow that can process and then produce slurry. We can take slurry pits, cover those, cap off the biomethane, flip the biomethane into hydrogen and solid carbon, and that's negative CO2. So that's atmospheric CO2 reduction on a massive scale, if you think how many slurry pits there are attached to dairy farms or beef farms or pig farms around the world. So yes, if we use pure fossil fuel um, natural gas, there is a small amount of fugitive emissions, but it's a fraction of the emissions you get from steam methane or hundreds of the emissions. But we do a lot of other good stuff, which I really am excited about. You know, So biomethane and CO2 reduction is reversing global warming. I mean, that's a hell of a, a name to go after. And um, yeah, it's, it's one of our big focus areas. When you talked about natural gas and fugitive emissions, one of the things that Don and I covered in a previous podcast was our hope that we no longer use colors for describing hydrogen. So would this still be a low emissions hydrogen or low CO2 hydrogen that you're producing? That's an excellent question. And I absolutely love the fact you're not keen on colors. Colors are ridiculous. I was at a COP26 session um, in Scotland and I was on a panel and asked the audience how many different forms of hydrogen there are. And the average number in the audience was five. How can there be five different sorts of an identical molecule? The most abundant molecule, you know, on the planet is truly crazy. So getting away from colors is the right thing. We have to talk about the emissions. So Britain is actually really, really strong in leading with the what they call term the low carbon hydrogen standard, which is amount the amount of embedded CO2 in your production process. So when you look at that, because it's actually a really good model, it's not just the actual uh, production itself, which for us is zero CO2, as we've talked about, we only make carbon, not CO2. It looks end to end at the electricity you use, any fugitive emissions from the, the production of the natural gas, any fugitive emissions for water electrolysis around how you purify the water and so forth, or so not fugitive emissions, bad expressions around all the associated uh, CO2. Um, so, as a result, I love the fact that other countries are now adopting similar models. So in the US, under the ERA uh, uh, approach, you've got the Greek model, which is their calculation methodology, and it's taken it to the next level. It's even harder to hit the standards that you need for the full subsidies. You have to be cleaner than clean, which is absolutely fantastic that it's encouraging people to forget colors, focus on the CO2 embedded in the hydrogen you produce, and set the standard ever higher. Hence, the ones that I'm really excited about is what we can do with agriculture and bio waste to turn it into biomethane to turn it into hydrogen and store the carbon i mean that's ultimately putting the co2 the carbon back into the ground where it came from originally and therefore is an opportunity to reverse global warming but more importantly make up for those other sectors which are hard to abate 
that we can actually accelerate that and therefore net net as a planet try and hit some pretty aggressive targets by 2030 2035 one question i have regarding your process so it's it's good to produce low carbon uh, hydrogen or zero carbon hydrogen in a in a high quantity but how can you scale up i mean we we when we use hydrogen on or for industries for heavy industries cement industry steel or whatever you need a lot of energy um, so how scalable is the process um, that you do? Is it more, you know, feasible for small businesses or small industries? Or is it really also feasible for like industries like the cement industry, et cetera, et cetera? So how much you can scale it up? Firstly, because we use plasma torches. So as I said, some pretty clever, strong electric field. The problems with plasma torches is things called waste heat and electrode degradation. And the best way of dealing with waste heat without having a physics lesson too early in the morning is in fact to make lots and lots of small torches, not one big one. So some of our competitors out there are making big ones. Um, I don't want to give away too many secrets on this in case they're watching, but small ones operating at high pressure is by far the best way of doing it because you can manage the heat much, much more effectively. So consequently, you take one of our standard units that we're piloting, you can scale that up by actually making multiple of them side by side. And then you have the massive added advantage when the wind is blowing or the sun is shining, so you've got a lot of renewable energy, you can produce a lot of hydrogen. When the wind stops blowing or it's cloudy, you just ramp down your production. So you might have 10% of your units on at that particular time. So it's much easier, much more flexible than SMR or water electrolysis when it's on or off. For us, we just ramp up, ramp down both by day, but also by season. So obviously some of the really exciting kind of seasonal storage, really large scale um, hydrogen production works very effectively in this way as well. The second way I was going to answer the question though is, is the proofs in the pudding for us. So we only formed in 2019. We very quickly had lab proof. We could do what we said we could do. We got SGS to come in and independently verify the physics of what we were doing because everybody was saying to us at the time, it's impossible. You know, there are, without naming names, large organizations spending billions of dollars to not be able to do the economics that you can do. SGS came in, validated it. We used that process to go through at that point our Series A funding, which raised enough money to build our demonstrator. Our demonstrator was built during lockdown, not the easiest process um, ever, uh, with labs being shut and all the, uh, the like. But we managed to build our demonstrator in 2022. And part of that process was raising our Series B, which funded our, uh, what we term pilots, which are live this year. So we have units and pilots and projects across all the sectors of hydrogen usage this year to show that it can be used in all of those different sectors. So to pick on one example um, that you mentioned, the cement industry. So Cenex, world's fifth largest cement producer, are one of our investors and one of our best partners. They provide a lot of um, useful engineering support. We're only 120 people, therefore having their backup and our other strategic investors is incredibly valuable. But more importantly, they were at site um, back on the 19th of June um, they loved what we were doing with the pilot. They're looking at how they can roll that out across their plants. And they, because obviously, as you say, Don, they need a huge amount of energy. They're looking about how do we do it bit by bit? So how do we um, improve the CO2 reduction by using some hydrogen? How do we improve the burn quality by injecting hydrogen? Because it's such a good fuel. It's such high en energy density that it's not just rocket fuel. It's also really good for improving the burn of other fuels as well. So as a result, they've got some really good, sophisticated stuff. And to be fair to Semex, they've been working on this across their global footprint for a while, doing really, really good stuff. So can we produce at the scale that they need? Absolutely. You know, we have plans in place that hopefully will get announced 
um, later in the year about how we would do that on a on a very large scale. But I'd like to say it was incredibly complicated. It's not. It's just scaling them up by having multiple side by side. It's you know sometimes keeping it simple is the best way. So looking at that cement example, when you would implement your solutions, it happens on site, correct? So can you actually describe what the like what the logistics and what the steps are for producing hydrogen on site for a cement factory? Obviously, there's a big there's a big push within the industry to say, um, you know, we should use excess renewables wherever possible. We should try and consolidate hydrogen production. And then governments and industries have this massive problem of how do I get hydrogen from A to B when B is a very, very long way away. So A, I can produce it where I've got a lot of renewables. Let's pick on the Shetland Islands in Britain. And B, I'm going to give it to industry in the south of England because that's where it's needed. So all of a sudden, the government is sitting there going, I need a huge pipeline to get hydrogen there. And it's quite hard monocule to move around because it's quite small, doesn't pressurize easily, et cetera, et cetera. So all the great stuff that you guys have talked about around what are the right energy carriers and so forth, the ammonias and methanols and, and so on. Our approach is slightly different, which is, yes, if there is excess renewables, of course we'd like that and we'd like to use it. But also our technology works where you need the hydrogen. So if you've got gas and you've got electricity to a site, we can actually produce it there. So we, we radically change the economics by not having to do storage, not having to do pressurization, not having to do transport, which also removes hydrogen fugitive emissions. So if you think of that massive long pipeline from the Shetlands to the south of England, that will have emissions that just pop out of that of hydrogen. And hydrogen is not the best thing to have out in the atmosphere for global warming either. So as a result, we think it's far more economic and better to produce the hydrogen where you need it. You use the existing grid, which means our solution can get implemented immediately so we're rolling out commercially next year rather than waiting for huge infrastructure investment project union is the name of it in the uk um, because we can do it tomorrow so the process then specifically is natural gas or biomethane or flare gas if we're on a flare side comes to us we use electricity we basically put the units down between those outputs and the the what the client needs it might be going to power station it might be going to a cement kiln as you talk about and that's as as much as we need to do to, in effect, get it to work. Obviously, there's a huge amount of uh, environment agency licenses, certification, planning, and so forth that goes in to ensure everything we're doing is absolutely safe. But the simple building blocks is is as easy as that. So you can use the existing gas pipeline net in UK or it's in Europe or wherever you find some, uh, provide the gas wherever it's coming from, if it's methane or if it's uh, natural gas, whatever, and then set up your technology at a site and produce hydrogen. And that could be used for burners, that could be used for putting it into a, a fuel cell and, and uh, producing energy. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, that model has the added advantage of helping with the infrastructure. So it, I think you, you came across it on one of your previous um, podcasts was, was talking about how do we build up the infrastructure to support transport. So we look at it and say, well, let's say we drop some of our units by cement kiln, steel manufacturing, um, other smaller scale industries that we're, we're looking at, or even with Centrica on some of their um, pika plants, which we're in the process of decarbonizing. If you do that on the fence, inside, outside the fence, you also have the ability to sell hydrogen externally. So we overproduce on those sites, or the plan is to overproduce on those sites so that you can sell hydrogen to other people that require it in the area, which are finding it very difficult to get zero CO2 um, hydrogen in, in most of the markets we're looking at, but also that you can then start building in for transport. So how do we build up the ability to have buses, cars, vans using hydrogen? Well, we need the network. Network. Well, if we can build the network 
as a byproduct of what else we're doing, then all of a sudden it enables that whole transport piece far, far easier than having to again get a government to subsidize or support people to lay down you know, hydrogen refilling stations around the, the countries, which obviously as California's found over the last 10 years is actually quite difficult if people then don't have the hydrogen cars. So our kind of model is to try and enable that piece whilst also working with transport providers. So Hyundai and Kia are, are uh, two of our investors and they're looking at various use cases, but we're also trying to work out what's the best way to work with bus companies and train companies and so forth. And ports is another interesting one to try and build up that infrastructure. Because if we can get it to critical mass, then all of a sudden we can have consumer adoption of, of hydrogen for transport through through canals, vans and, and the like. And so like when you say that you can produce excess hydrogen at some of these sites, like h- how much are we talking? Do you think you will be able to scale up uh, like to say on a port level where a ship comes in and then a you could re- like refuel a ship, which actually takes a lot of fuel to to run. Yes, so, and absolutely. So we we are working with uh, port clients on exactly that. So from the port's perspective, they are desperately trying to decarbonize their operations. If you think of all the equipment they've got on dockside anyway, that's a lot of energy consumption that would be good to decarbonize by the use of hydrogen. You've then got all the onward transport that comes in in terms of the lorries and so. So you can actually build up the infrastructure around a port very effectively before you get to the scale, as you learn as you go, to be able to provide it to shipping. The same thing, ironically, applies in airports. So I'm slightly skeptical about the developments that will be needed to get hydrogen onto planes effectively, but we can learn that lesson by building it up around airports. So there's some ground vehicle trials that are going on in the UK at the moment. I won't steal the RAF's thunder, but um, it is really impressive what's being done. And in supporting that, for ground vehicles and then for um, you know the infrastructure around the airport, you can create hydrogen generation on site. There is there is a lot of movement at the moment in the industry. I recently did a, a thing with Shell, um, where they building up a new facility in Cologne that produces bio energy made from bio waste. My question here is, it's an it's a complicated process, or not complicated, but it's an expensive process. How how expensive is your process compared to other processes when it comes to producing hydrogen? No, it, it, it's a really good challenge. There's probably two or three things nested in there. So on the pure biomethane point, but making biomethane is quite expensive. As a result, most governments have found clever ways of subsidizing that, and therefore it's typically used either on-site or blended into the natural gas pipeline to replace uh, fossil um, fossil methane. The challenge of that is to then use that biomethane for another process, whether it be ours or anybody else's, then is just quite often at, it's a level of cost too far to produce the hydrogen. So we're in the UK looking at when those subsidies are kind of coming to an end and therefore the producer is looking for new ways of um Using the uh, using the biomethane to say, well, actually, this process on the end, one of many, can actually do some really clever things with the biomethane. Our actual process itself is really cheap. We produce hydrogen the same cost as steam methane reforming. The challenge is the cost of producing the biomethane in the first place. So, my approach to it is, if you want to do this on a global scale and um, not have an impact on agriculture because you're replacing food crops or with um, you know, crops grown for this process, then we have to be looking for all those wastes like slurry from, from cows to be able to do it on scale. And there's one brilliant bit of legislation that's just come in in the UK, which is actually that all slurry pits have to be covered by 2027 because of the, otherwise the, the leakage of, of biomethane, which is fantastic because that then provides 
the impetus for us to do it. And you've used, as I said before, the leaf, what a PV cell that is, the cow to actually process it. And then we just pick it up at the, at the back end, literally. That, what that means is, therefore, the process to get there is really, really cheap. And it's now mandated for us to be able to provide it. Having said that, so, so sorry, Nicole, just, just one other point. It, everybody I talk to has the challenge that says, well, you're encouraging fossil fuels. Yes, you're doing some stuff on biomethane, but you're still doing things with fossil fuels. I would like you know to, to flag and for your listeners to hear Fossil fuels aren't bad. The reason that we've used them as a planet for so long is because they're really, really good fuels because they release a huge amount of energy when you use them. The challenge is you release a huge amount of CO2. So if you take that fossil fuel, you keep the good bit, the hydrogen, and you store the bad bit, uh, the carbon and solid carbon, you get most of the benefit without the downside. So I actually think as a planet and a transition to net zero, we need to carry on using fossil fuels. But it has to be in ways like our technology and others like it that use it in a zero CO2 way. And then we can transition to the huge amount of renewable energy we need in the other processes along the way. And therefore, the, the net of the kind of clever stuff on biomethane and, and CO2 negative gets supported by the use of fossil fuels in a non-CO2 uh, way. Um, it's, I think you have to do both. So I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a second. It is very necessary for technologies like yours to come onto the market for us to hit our carbon goals, right? They're very aggressive and there is no way that as a planet we can do it without this kind of technology because we we have no replacement for natural gas and, you know, coal and all of these things. So let's say your, your technology becomes huge, which it will, right? And, and you do it and, you, and you, you help us make the transition. What will happen once, you know, the governments and the technologies around renewables have come to a point where we have enough green energy? What's your transition plan then, like looking far out? I mean, obviously, all the use cases of biomethane and so forth are absolutely fine. All the industrial flare gases, so two of our clients in the UK just run their industrial, their large FTSE 100 companies run their processes and they produce a large amount of hydrocarbon waste. That currently gets flared and so it becomes CO2 in the atmosphere. We take that waste gas, they pay us to take that waste gas, and we flip it into hydrogen so it can be used for other things or even use the hydrogen because you make enough to power the plasma torches themselves. So those two use cases will go on into perpetuity. But I would argue that if you can use fossil fuels in a, a process that does not produce CO2, then fossil fuels aren't bad. It's the CO2 that's bad, not the fossil fuels. Now, when you start looking at the liquid fuels and other things and other pollutions that come with it, Absolutely. I'm not advocating burning oil forevermore and having oil spills around the world. That's crazy. But things like shale gas that actually has a relatively small fugitive emission profile, but has an absolutely fantastic energy content, that's a great thing to be using in the midterm. If we look out 50 years, if we have the ability to produce a huge amount of renewable energy from wind and solar, then of course that's the best way. But at which point I'd argue the best thing to do with that is to use it. If we've got all of that abundant renewable energy that we're we're absorbing in that way would be fantastic. Just use that straight away. Don't flip it through another process of producing hydrogen with our process, water electrolysis or anything. Just use it. That'll be a great place to be in in 50 years' time whenever we get there. One of the benefits of your technology is um, obviously compared to water elect uh, electrolysis that you don't need water. Uh, when we're talking about how do we secure our future when it comes to energy, we always come to the point how we store the energy. How do you store wind and, and solar? And you will need hydrogen 
for that to store it for a while and then use it later when you when you want to use it um so is that but the other thing for your technology is you need access to any form of gas so is this scalable for emerging countries where you maybe don't have a pipeline system or how do you do it in, in emerging countries? We've actually got one of our guys that's working on the uh, biomethane um, area is actually looking at trying to take this to developing countries for, for that exact reason. So how do you support small scale grid um, applications? Now, in the immediate term, I think there's great stuff we can do around agriculture and, and so forth, as we've talked about. In the longer term, to do it at a scale that you'd really want to be able to do and support industrial growth in those areas. If there isn't the access to gas, if you wanted to, sorry, not to gas, to a suitable level of electricity, there are other models you can do to power the, um, uh, the units. But ultimately, we think we are, it's the best way of putting it, one component in the overall solution you know yes i've got i'm so excited about our future but we're only one component so there will be lots of places where you say well the best thing to do here is just use solar panels and use that straight away the best way to do it here is hydro storage so pump storage because we've got enough water that we can actually pump it to the top of a hill store the uh, energy in effect in a, in a raised lake and then release it um over the winter period or whatever it might be so it's horses for courses rather than I personally believe our solution is, is perfect anywhere. And whilst, you know, I constantly spend my time saying, you know, our process produces five times as much hydrogen per kilowatt than water electrolysis. I also love one of our sister companies. So one of our investors is an investment fund called Hydrogen One. And one of their companies is a Scandinavian-based water electrolysis company. They have excess baseload hydro energy. What a fantastic use for it to produce hydrogen. If, if we ever got asked to do a project in Norway, I think I would refuse on principle that there's a better process over there because they've got free energy. Why waste gas on that when, you know, they've got free energy to do it? So, you know, it's, we're one solution of many. I, I'm, I'm excited. I love what I do. We're going to be huge, but we're only going to be one solution and we're going to trip ourselves up. You know, the fun, Don, to go back to a, a question you said a little while ago about it seems too good to be true. The best thing about my job is the number of mistakes we make. So, you know, the stage we're at, we're constantly learning things, improving things. We're on, you know, one route and we learn, actually, that's not quite what we thought we need to do it another way. And it is the best thing. We've got one of our buildings, is we call it the Shed of Shame, which is where all the bits of kit that we break go. So it's 307 National Avenue, ground floor, if you're ever in our area. And it's just brilliant. You walk in there, and there are so many bits of kit that are just broken. Or worse still, the bit tucked in the back corner that the hoping ASIO Robin doesn't see, which is a bit of kit we bought. And when we designed it, we knew we wanted it. But by the time we'd actually built it, we realized we were going to do something else. So therefore, we never actually used it at all. It gets tucked in the back corner. Now, Roy's not at all, so he can't see it. Um, but it's, it's, if you want to move at pace and you want to innovate, you have to do this. You have to accept it. It's, I mean, it's refreshing and it's brilliant with the guys. I mean, the, the, the spirit that they've got at the moment, we've, we've had a lot of really good breakthroughs recently. And um, they, the spirit there of let's just try it again, break it again, go with it. And the improvements they're getting, it's, it's fantastic. And all the stuff I'm talking about today, right? It's their work. They allow me to have these conversations because they're doing some great stuff. So this year, you're going to have a lot of your pilot projects out on the market. Can you talk about some of the projects that you're putting out and some of the projects that you're looking for partners to to do? If you break our world down into, we, we do it as three sections. So the main, we term it enabling the hydrogen economy. So that's industrial decarbonization, transport and energy management. 
we also have the chunk around CO2 mitigation, flare mitigation, so industrial or oil and gas flare, um, and then CO2 removal, so the um, biomethane piece. So we've got projects or pilots across the whole area. So sometimes a client will say, look, come and put a, put a pilot on the ground. Sometimes it'll be actually, we need to understand from a feasibility perspective, how you do it. Um, some of those examples are public. So at COP27, which we couldn't talk about because it was a week too soon, Nicole, when we met before, which was um, we announced an MOU with the uh, with EGAS and the Egyptian government to do flare mitigation. So that is in effect where you've got all this horrible uh, burning of uh, uh, natural gas that isn't needed. We take that natural gas, prevent it becoming CO2, flip it into hydrogen, the hydrogen is enough. You produce so much, you can actually use it to power the torches and have spare hydrogen left over that either can be used to replace these gensets on site um, or uh, sold if there's a way of selling it. The byproduct carbon black is actually a, a soil enhancer. So if you've got no commercial use for it, you can just dig it into the ground. It enhances the soil. And obviously when you're using the hydrogen, you produce a lot of water. So as well as mitigating the flare in that project in a pretty arid area in, in Egypt, you produce a lot of water and a lot of soil enhancing carbon. Not bad things to have in that particular area. That hopefully we will be live in time as these things take quite a long time um, for COP28. And the petroleum minister from Egypt was only two weeks ago tweeting on, um, actually he was on LinkedIn, talking about the progress we're making and hoping that he'll be able to talk about COP28. So that's one end of the spectrum. The other end, we have some really exciting things on the biomethane front. So we have two projects backed, in fact, by the UK government, one of which will be the first time ever that end-to-end -end we've done what we call the Baltafen process. We've got to give it a cool name um, to go with that cool logo. Um, and that, in effect, will be the first time ever that uh, the biological um, plant waste, agricultural waste, I should say, is then taken the whole way through to, to hydrogen and then the carbon put into the ground. So it's really nice and satisfying you get some real good solid carbon that you know is not carbon dioxide you dig it into the ground and it won't decompose it won't turn into carbon dioxide and many reverse uh, global warming now in between um projects so we talked about industrial carbon uh, decarbonization already so cement being the obvious example um in terms of energy management our probably highest profile pilot this year is with centrica so centrica in the uk have a series of peaker plants so when they uh, the grid needs energy they switch on and they use gas to do that. Obviously, that can be decarbonized very easily by us flipping the natural gas into hydrogen and then using the hydrogen uh, for the peaking operation. The beauty of that is it only peaks for four hours of the day. So for the other 20 hours of the day, there are periods when electricity is very cheap. In fact, there's e excess electricity. So when there's excess, we produce hydrogen, we store it, and then when you need the electricity, you switch it on. But instead of it being pure natural gas, it's hydrogen as well. So it's, it's a lovely, lovely model. At the moment, obviously, we're really, really small scale to show that it works. Um, the rollout of that, both in the UK, but also abroad for other peaker plants, is, is one of the things that excites me the most. And then in terms of the last area, transport, so we have a series of projects we're working on transport. Some I can talk about um, with Hyundai, where they're looking at how do they improve the quality of our output. If you think where we use natural gas, there are always impurities. So we have to get rid of those if you want 5.9's hydrogen to go into a fuel cell. Um, and there are some other exciting ones that will be coming out. The most exciting, though, of which is um, about, I think, a week or two weeks ago, we have been part of um, a very exciting initiative in Britain called ESSE, um, which is the Earth Space Sustainability Initiative, which is around the right standards that we need to manage space as a planet better. So it's not just Britain, but it's being hosted by Britain and an amazing lady called Joanne Wheeler. 
Um, and it's got not just government backing in the UK and various other countries, but it's actually got King Charles backing it as well. So on the 28th of June, um, we launched the SE initiative and um, King Charles announced his Astra Carta. And we all had a very nice lunch at um, Buckingham Palace, which was just a normal Wednesday, obviously, is what I tell everybody. But it's, it's absolutely cool that it, it's an initiative. And obviously, Bridge has been used in space for, for a long time as, you know, or to get to space as propulsion. But there are so many other use cases. It's, it's really quite exciting. And for the guys, because obviously, um, them knowing that High Rock is being discussed with King Charles, he was very interested in what we were doing. It's just the Uber, it's, it's the best ever, um, you know, appreciation that they could receive to know, well, actually, the king of our land is currently interested in what they're doing in a small little lab in in, uh, in Hull whilst they're breaking things and filling out room 307. So we talked a lot about scaling up in on an industrial uh, basis. Um, but when we talk about hydrogen, especially in the transport sector, we talk a lot to uh, logistic companies. And they are quite interested for their trucks in, in hydrogen, but also see the infrastructure problem. Uh, would it be possible to install one of your devices uh, for, you know, a small, medium truck company that has maybe 10, 20, 30 trucks running and they can produce their own hydrogen through the gas pipeline that they're connected to? In Germany, for example, it's quite easy because most have a, a gas connection. Uh, at their home. So they could use the normal gas, produce the hydrogen for their trucks with your devices. At a, And it's also, in, in terms of cost, it's manageable for them? Yeah, ab absolutely. And there are clients who we're talking to on that front that aren't public yet. So we can't say who they are or what they're doing. But most places in Europe are constrained with um, the electricity supply. So when you look at, for those fleets, about how do we get, you know, fast, fast charging of vans and so forth, they haven't got a good enough grid connection to enable that to do, to enable them to do that. So they are looking at hydrogen as a solution. But if it's hydrogen sent in from some central production point, then it becomes very, very expensive. So they're looking a lot at how we produce local hydrogen, also using our technology, you produce on demand almost. So therefore you don't have to have large amounts of storage because a lot of these places, You don't want huge tanks of hydrogen at high pressure because you know you're in an, uh, you know, a domestic area or whatever else, and therefore there's there's risks attached. So we are yeah looking at a series of projects on that front, supporting you know we term white van fleets of a small scale, but right the way through to a large scale. When you come out at the really big end, then whilst we're using a fraction of the energy of a water electrolysis, it still mounts up, and therefore you have to look at different solutions for the Amazons of this world. But for the small fleets, it's really simple and. Also, what we're trying to encourage on that front is if you're gener generating a filling station for your vans, please make it available for customers as well at the same time. So most of these sites have a fence that you can have filling both sides and therefore please increase the infrastructure that you've got for domestic uh, use of cars, which won't get used very much to begin with. But if we don't put the network down there, we'll never get to hydrogen powered cars. Amazing. I think you, like a lot of this actually really seems too good to be true, if I'm being honest here. <laughs> And I, I, I wake up every morning thinking, right, was I dreaming all that? Is I'm going to wake up. No, no, it's all good. It's it's still going. I mean, it's crazy. It, it's truly, truly crazy. I spent, I don't know, 15 years, the last 15 years of my life when I kind of got out of a sensible career, just working on different energy-saving projects, businesses, and so forth, trying to find the one that could actually make a real difference. And having met at Camp, the mad Dutch scientist that kind of has done all the physics behind this, what, 10 years ago. It took us a few years to work out how to use it, the best way to do it and so forth. 
But once we'd done that, we we launched the company, we proved it worked. It's it is it's crazy. It's crazy exciting. And our challenge is just how do we get the right partners on board to enable us to do it quicker? So the big challenges we've got at the moment are we're going to be in the US later this year. So we're going to try and launch our first pilot. Um, we've sort of targeted December the 31st because um, it'd be great to be this year, but there's so much to do. And so, you know, we're out only yesterday talking to various US partners saying, well, look, if you're looking at these kind of projects, we could show you how technology works. Would that make sense? And it, the response has been fantastic, but we're also at the same time trying to conquer the Middle East with the Egyptian uh, project and then the rollout from that. So we went into it thinking, right, we can help you with flare gas. So if we deal with Egypt's flare gas, we've reduced their national carbon footprint by one to one and a half percent. What a cool project to be involved in. The Minister of Petroleum is like, oh, that's great. But actually, what I'm really interested in is the hydrogen hubs that we're creating as a country. Because at the moment, they're looking at providing hydrogen to Europe. But if you do water electrolysis, yes, you can build the solar that they need. But actually, funding the water electrolysis is really difficult, as well as the pipelines. So he's sitting there getting his head around, I've got abundant gas reserves. I've got the solar that I can put in. So why don't I produce five times as much hydrogen with your process and then pop it through to Europe? So you know, potentially there's a hydrogen hub in the offering in the next few years. Well, that's crazy. You know, we'll have to work out how we do that and find the right EPC partners and everything else. But, you know, it, yeah, it, it, it beats sitting around not doing anything. So, um, yeah, it is too good to be true, but hopefully we will be achieving it. And it'll be interesting to check back in in a year's time to see if the mad progress of the last year is the same in a, in a year's time as well. Yeah, thank you so much, Tim. That was that was quite an interesting insight in what you're doing and also the future of hydrogen. We can see so much is happening at the moment when it comes to hydrogen. The technology advancement we made in the last four years, it's, it's breathtaking. And it was so good to hear what you're working on and the technologies that you're working on and that it's scalable and, yeah, that we are looking forward to to a hydrogen society when it comes to in industries and, and to all the other things. Well, thank you. And, and thank you for, for things like this and what you're doing, because this gives a platform for hydrogen to be talked about. And you shouldn't underestimate the, the impact that can have from people coming up to me after the one that, Nicole, you and I did last year, where people have come up and said, oh, I saw that Tech Titans thing. That was really, really good. Tell me about it. So you're giving it sounds crazy, air to hydrogen that allows the conversation to go on and it allows these these advancements to happen. So two weeks ago, I was talking about a problem we've got around, uh, it was a compression piece on one of our projects. And the guy I was talking to said, oh no, that's just been solved by you know another company that he was aware of. So getting us as kind of businesses and people in the hydrogen industry talking and sharing information is fantastic. So this forum, please keep it going. And I, I'm a listener, a subscriber now, as well as a, as a participant. That was Tim Davis, CEO of HiRock, and thank you so much, Tim, for your time that you spent with us and giving us so much detailed information about the company and the process of making hydrogen without water. If you want to learn more about hydrogen and more about these innovations, be sure to follow us at changeofdirections.com. We have a weekly newsletter, we have the podcast and many more informations. So be sure to come around and give us a like or a follow or a subscription if you want to. That was it for this week. Until the next time, bye-bye. <laughs>